Um, I remember growing up and uh, being close to um, an ocean. There was a couple of instances that I remember, and this happened a couple of times where my family was on the shore. It was late at night. The sun had gone down, and there really was no moon, and it being extremely dark. And I, if it was one occasion, me and my brother or my siblings, and another occasion, me with friends, but you hear the pounding of the waves. And you know the ocean's it's there somewhere. And you're on the sand, and you're getting closer, and you're kind of challenging, daring each other. How close can you get before you get into the water? But I remember on these particular nights, it was so loud, and I could not see the water, that there was this element of, like, this is, this is scary. Like, it's, here's a thrill factor here. And when you hear the water and you know it's there, there's this element that water has power. It has destructive forces, destructive nature. But you take that and add in darkness, and it only makes it all the more fearful. I don't know if some of you have had that experience, but water and darkness brings this element of fear, chaos. And when we look at Genesis, especially in the creation account, we see that those two elements are there, water and darkness. But the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brings order to chaos. Now, we're going to be talking this morning about Noah and the flood. It's actually a large text, Genesis 6, 9 through 7, 24. Um, so we're going to be highlighting certain passages in that text. The main idea this morning that I want to convey to you is that we ought not to fear the waters, though they prevail over the earth. Trust in the God of the waters who is able to save you. That's the main, the main point that I hope you are able to walk away with today. And as I talk to you this morning about the waters, and we're talking about Noah and the flood, there's also this element that waters has a symbolic meaning and parallelism with judgment, right? The, the whole point of the flood is God's judgment on earth. But that theme is going to come up again and again through scriptures as judgment comes, as judgment looms over God's people. There's actually terms and elements of the waters, the rushing waters. And there's this idea that waters and judgment run parallel one with another. And so as I bring this main idea to you to not fear the waters, I highly doubt that this morning you're thinking, oh, no, is a flood coming to Holland, Michigan. I, I'm not fearful of that. What I'm saying, though, is there is a judgment that is coming. Today, we will talk about that judgment. And today, I hope that you are able to put your trust in the God of the waters who is able to save you. As we look at this text, I'm really going to focus in on three outcomes of the flood um, these are going to be the main points that we're going to talk about today, so I hope that as you take these away, these are encouraging for you to remember as you think back about the sermon. What are the three outcomes of the flood that we will highlight? First of all, God allows the flood to destroy. It destroys land, it destroys animal, it destroys man alike. Secondly, God uses the flood to distinguish there's a distinguishing element that happens here. He is setting someone apart from others, and we're going to get into that. Thirdly, God suppresses the flood to renew. 
The first question we have is, why a flood? Uh, Timothy prepared us last week in the sermon talking about the beginning of chapter 6 of Genesis, how corruption is increasing in the earth. People are bent on evil. It says that the thoughts and intentions of their heart are evil, incessantly, consistently, all the time bent on sin. And I think, I think the, the best reasoning we can find in this text is 6.11 through 13 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I actually really appreciate, uh, if you have an NIV Bible in front of you, a new, new um, uh, international version, it actually in place of corrupt says ruined, that the, the earth has been ruined by sin. It's been ruined, and God's looking at it in this aspect that it, it needs to be cleaned, it needs to be washed, it needs to be wiped away. And I thought that brought out a helpful um, analogy for us to see that whether it's corrupt or whether it's ruined, God is wanting to destroy what was created for the purpose of doing something new. Well, let's get into the first uh, point here. God allows the flood to destroy. I'm being very purposeful in my wording here that God allows the flood to destroy. The flood is by no means something that takes God by surprise. It's no means something that God doesn't have power or control over. Quite, quite the opposite. God is the one who is using the flood. He is the one who allows the flood to accomplish his work. It's quite a beautiful picture. That means God is in control of every aspect of the flood. Do you believe that? I think for most of us in this room, I'm, I'm going to speak for you, I know for myself, it's so easy to be like, yeah, I know that. Of course God was in control of the flood. Of course God was in control of the events that happened. And it was good. It was a good thing. But then I was caught in my thinking. And here's the application then why am I so panicked by the events and the circumstances of today that come into my life? Why are we so anxious about the fears that we have in this life happening right now? Can we really say God's in control of everything? That he's in control of my children, my family? That he's in control of my finances and my job? that he's in control of my life, that everything that happens, maybe in health or in sickness, maybe in the loss of a loved one, is God really in control? Sure, a cosmic, worldwide, insane, catastrophic flood, no problem believing he was in control of that, but is he really in control of what's going on in my life? Well, I think that it only makes sense to see that the the flood happened six millennia ago or around there. We are so far removed from that that it's easy to believe God was active and present there. But when we get closer to home, when we get through the instances and the trials that we're going through in life, it becomes much harder to believe God is in control and that we can actually surrender everything to him. It's much more personal now. 
And so I want to bring that up just as an application that as we go through this story, I'm going to guess that most of you have heard this story before, many times before. But as we go through this, place yourself there in that time. Place yourself in the shoes of Noah and his wife's shoes and his children's shoes. This is an immense event. God is going to destroy all that they know. It's a big deal. And may you and I be reminded that though we are having trials and real hurts and real pains in this life, they fade in comparison to the catastrophic destruction that happens here in this text. But he is still the God of the waters, and we must not forget that. He's in control. I think what really comes out here in this is that I, I, I know he's in control, and maybe you would say, yeah, da- Pastor David, I know he's in control, but for me, I just don't like how he's controlling things. I just don't like what he's doing, because if, if he's in control of everything, then why would he allow this situation to happen? Doesn't he know that's going to hurt? Or why is he allowing this pain to continue? Or why is he going to allow this circumstance to take place over? Like, God, this is not how I would do things. But that's exactly the point. He's in control. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. Will we surrender to him? As believers, we must submit to God. As Noah submitted to God, remember God told him he was going to destroy everything. We must come to a point of surrender and admit, God, I'm clearly not in control here. I don't have the power, and I place myself, I place my family, my health, my well-being, and all that I have into your hands, even if it means I'll lose it. Even if it means it gets destroyed, I must trust you. That is the calling for the believer. That is the place we must come to reckoning with God and understanding he is in control. The flood narrative kind of gives us this picture that God is undoing what he did in creation. You see how God, the spirit of God, hovered over the face of the waters. And when God separated the land from the waters, he said it was good. So God is creating order out of the chaos. But here in the flood narrative, you kind of see it happening the opposite, right? God's allowing the waters and the land to mesh again. The waters grow and there's no separation anymore. Chaos has returned. What happened? Is this a mistake? Did, Did something go wrong? No. This is all a part of God's glorious plan. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in chapter 1. And God separated the land from the waters. But if God removes himself from what is his perfect creation, chaos will inevitably ensue, right? If we can think of it this way, uh, how many of you have been to Hoover Dam? Quite a few of you have been to a large dam of some sort. Maybe you've seen pictures of a dam online. And when when you get to understand or just picture that, the gravity, no pun intended, uh, uh, of the immensity of the power of that water behind that dam, it, the hair on the back of your head kind of stands up if you're at the bottom. Like, this is scary. Like, this, this thing is holding a ton of power at bay that could be catastrophic, that can destroy. In a way, God 
is the dam that keeps the chaos of the flood waters at bay. When the Spirit of God comes and hovers over the face of the deep, He creates this order that is perfect so that you and I can live and move and breathe. But if you remove the God of the waters, if you remove the dam, the waters will come and the waters will destroy. In the beginning of chapter 6, it seems like this is what people would want. And Ventura, in our day as well, it seems like this is what people want. If we can remove God from the situation, remember in the beginning of chapter 6, they're doing only what is evil continually again and again. And I'm sure that in their minds, if there's a possibility of getting rid of God, well, that would be great according to their perception, according to their logic. You see, they didn't want God. Their hearts were anti-God. They had rejected him. They had rebelled against this God. So removing him sounds like a pretty good idea. But what they did not understand is that removing the God of the waters will only usher in the waters of his destruction. How true is this of our day? I know we all know this. When we hear the chanting of crowds to remove God from our society, to remove God from schools, from literature, from government. What do you think is going to happen next? Judgment is coming. And we ought to herald that message that we ought to herald. There, is a, there ought to be a love for God and a desire for God. You see this with the psalmist in Psalms. And he says, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The true Christian wants to be closer to God The unbeliever wants to remove God. Here we see a separation. Let me ask you, if judgment did come upon our society today, would would you be surprised? Is it something that you're already anticipating? Are you following God's instructions for escaping judgment? Children in here, children, how many of you guys like playing Legos? Hmm? Guys, I, I got a lot of hands. And I have adults play, that's great too, yes. Adults, raise your hands. <laughs> playing Legos, you can open up that Lego box and you can pull out the different pieces to construct something beautiful. But oftentimes, tucked in that Lego box, there's also going to be the instructions. And the instructions have a page by page instruction on how to build the Lego toy, how to make it perfect and how to make it function the way it ought to work. God has also given us instructions. He gave instructions to Noah on how to build an ark, but he has given you and me instructions, different instructions for how to escape judgment. They are instructions for your salvation. Let me, let me just give a couple of them to you. You guys are going to know these by heart. Instructions like Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Or how about John 5? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into the 
judgment, but has passed from death to life. God has given us the instructions we need to escape the waters of, of judgment that are coming upon us. He has given us the instructions that we need. And God has given us those instructions, not so that we would perish and drown in the waters, but that we would be delivered. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is, this is kind of interesting to think about. Our, our instructions for salvation are so different than that of Noah's. Think of, he had to build a 450-foot boat. I sure am glad I don't have to do that, aren't you? I want to know where to begin. But what are, my instructions are, believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him. He is the one who is to come. His blood is going to wash you. You put your faith in him and act in that faith. You will be saved. Now, I hope you understand when I say this. Don't you see how ridiculous it would be to not believe in the Lord and be swept away by the judgment? It's not a hard thing to do. Your instructions are much easier than that of Noah's. Trust in the Lord. Believe. What a shame it would be if you are sitting here this morning and you have not put your faith in the Lord. You have not believed and you're swept away by the waters. All you had to do was believe. All you had to do was set your eyes on Christ and live in accordance to his word. That's all he wanted. That's all he was asking. And you failed. Like so many in Noah's day, they did not trust or believe. God uses the flood to destroy all who have breath. And if you notice the term when we did our reading, the term was blot out. It appeared four times in the text. It blots out. Blots out those living in the world. Blots out under creation. The idea is that the Lord is wiping the earth clean of all the blots. Right? So you think of stains on a garment, inks, it's like he's blotting it out, he's taking it all away and renewing it and making it good. He is destroying man, animals, geography alike, all because of the blots. Man's persistent, unrelenting rebellion against him. Now careful, I contend to go here too. It's not evil of God to destroy. It can be so easy to think that way. It's not wrong of him. It's not unkind of him to do what he wishes as the potter with the clay he is molding. This is what we see when Paul brings this up in the letter to the Romans. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for dishonorable use. So he has got, he's got two vessels that he's made, two vases, two, two bowls, however you think about it, out of this same lump of clay. One is for glory. The other is created for destruction. I, I, I took pottery, one class in pottery in college, to uh, get that gen ed, whatever it was done. And, and I couldn't imagine, you take that lump of clay and you got to meet it and you got to get all the bubbles out of it and make sure that it's nice and consistent. I know Mary Kodiker knows all about this. 
and you got to get that lump of clay, just all the bubbles out, and then you could put it on the wheel and start to spin it, and you could start to make and form. And if, if I had one of you come up to me and ask me while I'm forming this vase, I'm spending hours, like, what, what are you making this for, your, your mother, your, your wife? And you're like, oh, I'm going to break it when I'm done. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, God has the complete authority and glory to do whatever he wants with the lump of clay. One vessel will be vessel of honor. One vessel will be a vessel for destruction. And no one is able to question him on what he does. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? You guys, how in the world can you have a vessel prepared for destruction. But that's what he's doing. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. You see, the one vessel being destroyed makes the other vessel saved all the more precious. Because now out of the same lump, there's only one that remains. And that one is glorious to the Father. He will set that up on the pedestal, on the mantle. He will keep it. This is the one he has prized. He has prepared it beforehand for glory. The vessels of mercy in this story of the flood are no doubt Noah and his family and those with them in the ark set apart for glory, distinguished from the rest of the earth. And that leads us to our second point. God uses the flood to distinguish. Again, it's hard it's hard to think of a God who is loving and kind and good, who created everything perfect to allow such destruction to, to destroy and to um, uh, remove the good and, 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 then the, and the people that were there to, to renew it and start over again. It leads us, though, into a deeper understanding of the heart of God. What is he doing? This is actually very beautiful. I hope that, I hope that you grasp this part of the sermon, that judgment is what distinguishes us from the world. If you look at Genesis 7, 17 and 18, it says, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose. That's, that's glorious. The ark went up with the waters. It was on top of the waters, high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. I might add, floated safely on the face of the waters. What distinguishes those who are gods from those who are not? The water, the very thing that God sent into the world to judge the world is the very thing that distinguishes God's people who are on top from those who are not, who are below, drowning. This is amazing. It's so clear that as the waters rise so do Noah and all those inside the ark. While the waters prevail and while judgment increases, the distinction between all who are gods and all who are not grows as well. Keep this in mind, Ventura, because the same will be true of you and I as we move closer and closer into judgment, into times of tribulation. The God of the waters is demonstrating his power, his condemnation and his mercy through the flood. We've seen before how the theme of floodwaters and judgment seem to walk hand in hand with each other through Scripture, this thematic play of judgment. 
Well, the flood is really the power of God judging the earth. And as believers, we have wisdom and insight to know that God's judgment is yet coming. It's not done in the flood. When the waters receded in the flood, it wasn't over, right? We know a judgment is yet to come. And this judgment that is yet to come will even be greater than that of the flood waters. And as believers, we know that, but it's precisely through the judgment that God will distinguish his children from the rest of the world. Just like the waters distinguish God's children from the rest of the world. So with that, do not fear the waters. Don't fear the judgment. I, and I agree, it sounds scary. Who looks forward to judgment? Who looks forward to catastrophic uh, death? Uh, who looks forward to standing before the waves of an ocean that you can neither see nor feel, but you, you know it's there, you hear it. It can be scary. But don't fear the waters. Rather, trust in the God of the waters who is able to save you. That is the instructions you have. God preserves those who are his, his righteous children. Oh, this brings up a fun part, because righteous, two times in this text, Noah is called righteous. Here in Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah, and Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So, depicts Noah as righteous in this text. And then again in 7-1, this time the Lord says it. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Wow. To have the God of the heavens give that title is overwhelming. But Noah is set apart from the surrounding generation in a way that he is called righteous. But I really want to take a moment here to talk about what that means. Defining righteousness. And I'll say it because it's very important for us to not develop bad theology that leads to bad practice. Let me explain what I mean. Perhaps many of us here have grown up in Sunday school or church where we were taught that Noah's righteousness was his moral integrity, his, his good walk in the midst of an evil generation. Perhaps we were taught that Noah's righteousness was his ability to honor God and to worship God in a way that God saw that looked down on him and decided to save Noah in the midst of this impending judgment. I want to advocate that this teaching is not faithful to the scriptures. And here's why I, I say that. The word of God teaches us that there are two avenues to righteousness and only two. The first avenue is that righteousness comes from keeping the law of God perfectly. You, if you are sinless and perfect, have never done wrong, then righteousness is attributed to you. And that is clear. Scripture makes that clear. If you abide by the whole law, you are righteous. But the second avenue is a righteousness that comes from God simply by trusting him. It's a righteousness from God given to you by trusting that he is in control and you are surrendering everything to him. Now, Paul makes this adamantly clear in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, Paul states, For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What is the all things and what is the them? Paul is referring to his education. He is referring to his pharisaical lifestyle, his zeal for the morality of the law, all of that. He's saying, I am counting those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What? And that would have been an astounding thing to say among the Judaizers or among the people in that time. He's saying all of that was for naught. But this is what he says. And be found in him and found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. There it is, Avenue 1. Do you guys see it? A righteousness that comes from the law. Perfect morality. Paul's saying, I don't want that one. What's the one he wants? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's the second avenue. So right here in this passage, if you want to highlight it, circle it. Here, Paul is saying in one verse, the two avenues to righteousness are perfect obedience to the law or dependence on God in faith. And Paul's saying, I want dependence on God. That's the one that is glorious. That one is garbage. See that? Paul will go on to explain into the Galatians, to the church in Galatia, that if by chance you are trying to be righteous by holding on to the law, that if you want to be moral and righteous based on the law, you need to keep the whole law, he's going to say. If you don't keep the whole law, you're cursed. This is what he says in Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want to hold to that standard? You better hold to it wholeheartedly, fully. And if you fail in one little area, you're cursed. Ooh, that's not the one I want. Paul says, faith in Christ. So where am I going with all of this? Noah is set apart by the rest of those who are around him, because he is righteous, is what the scriptures tell us. And if the scriptures is teaching us about these two avenues of righteousness, we know that from Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one is able to save themselves. But it has to be a gift through grace. It has to be faith. That is the only way you can attain righteousness. In Galatians 3.11, he actually says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Therefore, and this is the, this is the conclusion, Noah's righteousness could not have come from his good works. Noah's righteousness could not have come from a moral integrity that God saw before the flood happened. Noah's righteousness was not because he had an advent worship of God in any way that caused God to see him and go, ooh, this one looks good out of the bunch. I'm going to set him apart and save him. No. Noah's righteousness must be a result of the second avenue. He had faith in God. He trusted God. This is exactly what Hebrews 11 tells us. All the way in the back of your Bibles in Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed 
an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, Noah had to build an ark. And that was the means by which he was demonstrating his faith. Get this. This is the storyline of Genesis 6 and 7, right? God appears to Noah and warns Noah, Noah, a flood is coming. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to build an ark. These instructions are to help Noah escape the flood. They're different from our instructions where we are to put our faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross in our place. Noah needs to build an ark in trust that God's going to save him through the ark, right? But there's something important here to understand. I don't think we should miss this. If you're a true believer, then you will act according to the instructions God has given you. If God has told you this is how you will be saved, you need to listen to those instructions and act upon them. Faith plus action is what distinguishes the believer from the rest of the world. Noah believed when God said that a flood was coming, and then Noah built the ark. He still had to build the ark, because, listen, it would have done Noah absolutely no good to believe God, but not build the ark, right? He would have been swept away by the flood, because God said, this is what's going to happen. Do you believe it? Yes. Then build the ark. Okay. And it's exactly God's working through the ark that saves Noah. But if Noah goes, I believe you, but, I mean, 450-foot boat seems big. I, don't, I think I'll just try to, you call it, tread water. No, he's going to get washed away by the waters. God, God specifically gave Noah instructions to have faith and then to act. Believer, for you and me as well. I, I bring this up because here's the point. I am concerned I am concerned for you here sitting. I'm concerned for you watching. You can say you believe in God and you can believe in his promises all you want, but if you're not acting according to that faith, if you're not living in accordance to that belief, what good is it for you? James makes it clear, faith without works is dead. What good is it for you? As a matter of fact, if you have been in these circles here, have known about God your whole life, have even potentially believed in God and know that these things are real but are not living according to that standard, woe is you. We must act in accordance to the faith. Do we love God? Do we love his people? Are we committed to growing and bearing fruit? Because I'll tell you something, a branch that does not bear fruit is cut down. It is cast aside. It withers. It is gathered and thrown into the fire. If you are attached to the vine, you will bear fruit. This is so important for distinguishing you from all the rest of creation who will be under the flood, under the waters of God's judgment. If we put our faith in Jesus, and by the way, this bearing fruit is only possible by putting your faith in the promised seed. It's only possible if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, who is the vine. If we put our faith in him, 
then you will enter into a renewed creation. And this leads us to our third point. God suppresses the flood to renew. I hadn't really thought of this before this week on studying on this text, but it actually is God's kindness to suppress the waters. Think of it. God could have forsaken. I'm done. I'm over you. I'm through with this. You have rejected me. You have rebelled with me. I'm out. And I am not going to hover over the waters again. You will remain in perpetuity underneath of the weight of the flood. But God doesn't do that. God returns. He suppresses the flood and the waters go down. In his kindness, God is loving and he is merciful. And this is the beautiful part of this. What's above the waters now? In the beginning, creation one, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. What's above the waters this time? Noah and the ark. It's, it's floating on the face of the waters. And I love this because here you see a contrast and yet also a parallel happening. It's the lineage of the promised seed to come. It's floating on the waters. While before it was the spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the waters, the spiritual God has now continued with his redemptive plan and already elements of the physical seed of the Messiah is now on the face of the waters while all else is destroyed. You see, the flood didn't stop God's plan. The rebellion of the people didn't thwart God's promise. No, he's carrying through right along as he had always promised. He's gone from the spiritual God now to becoming the physical God as the seed of Christ is in the loins of Noah. And the promised seed will continue to come. Nothing can stop God's plan. Praise the Lord. Nothing can stop him. And through it, eight people are saved. And the animals, the evil that prevailed on the planet was blotted out by the waters which God had sent. He has washed the earth and now floating above the waters is the seed of the coming Messiah. The God of the waters suppresses the waters because he is keeping his promise, his promise that he made to Adam and to Eve. The serpent crusher will destroy the devil. Once God promises something, nothing can stop it. And through that promise, we will see a new creation flourish that cannot be destroyed by evil. Notice how I said through that promise, a new creation will flourish. That cannot be destroyed. Because you're going to hear next week, right? I don't want to get in too far on that, but next week you got the waters receding and New creation, right? But that creation is still going to be under the bondage of sin. But through the promised seed, there's a new creation that cannot be bound by sin. Well, what is this new creation? All who put their trust in the promised seed will enter into this new creation and be set free from sin. Isn't this what Paul says? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is now taking place in Christ 
is a new creation in the hearts of the people who trust him. It's a spiritual awakening, a spiritual renewal. And we know that one day, that spiritual creation will be physical. When the new heavens and the new earth join together, and it will once and for all be free from the bondage of sin. Creation now groans and waits and longing for the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. All right? That day is coming. You and I believe it, and we know it, and we wait for it. In that day, it is no longer the creation, man, animals that will be blotted out. In that day, it's sin and death that will be blotted out. Isaiah, Isaiah foretold of this when God says in Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the real blotting out we're waiting for. That's the blotting out that Noah was only a picture of. The real blotting out comes when Jesus dies on the cross in your place and in mine. When he takes the punishment for our sins and suffers it shouldn't have been him on the cross. Come on. It should have been you and me. We should have experienced an immense eternity of God's wrath. We should have been under the flood waters. We should have been drowning, crushed by the weight. No, no. Jesus did that for you and me. The instructions are, do you believe? That's all you have to do. Do you believe he died for you? This is an amazing, glorious plan of redemption that God has planned ever since the beginning of time. In conclusion, think of this. The Spirit of God is oftentimes paralleled as the breath or having breath or the breath of God in scriptures. You see that oftentimes come up. And I find it fascinating because there's a stark contrast between the Spirit of God who's hovering above the face of the deep in Genesis 1, like this life giver, this breath giver is above the waters. And then in Genesis 6, you have those who are under the waters who have no breath. They're done. They're gone. And those who are born into this world are born into sin. We are born into the curse of the fall of man. There's nothing we can do about it. In a way, you and I are born under the waters. It's only a matter of time before you can't breathe anymore. It's only a matter of time when it's done. Will you not seek the spirit of the living God who is above the waters, who is able to give you life and breath? Will you not seek him? Here's a little graphic understanding of this, maybe to help us out. None of us, if drowning underwater, desperate for help, would look up to a God who can save you and say, oh, he's got rules. Oh, he's, he's requiring me to give my life to him. I mean, I have to sacrifice and serve his people. And, oh, yeah, I don't think so. I think I'm going to pass on that covenant and I'm just going to sit here and drown. None of us would say that. Let's be honest with ourselves. We would be desperate to say, yes, whatever it is, whatever you do, whatever you require of me, I will 
receive the breath of life and come up out of these waters, you've been given that revelation in your life. You're given that revelation this morning. You are drowning spiritually unless you have the breath of God in your lungs. Come up out of the waters and recognize that life is worth living for him, even if it is a life that is a living sacrifice. This is Paul again. I appeal to you, brothers, to present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or how about Galatians 20? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm back there. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about the rules. It's not about, oh, I don't want to sacrifice. No, you're fully invested into God because he saved you from drowning. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You need to be awakened to your need of God. You need to be awakened to your need of his rescue. You need to see that you're a great sinner and the great judgment of waters looms over you if you do not have him. Come up. Come up out of the water to the spirit and the breath of God. Come out of it alive to Christ Jesus. For God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection that is in Jesus Christ. This is a spiritual baptism. A spiritual baptism saves. That baptism is, Jesus has washed me clean and called me out of the waters that I might live to a new life in him. Isn't that what we say? buried in the likeness of Christ and raised to new life with him. Come out of the waters. God has made known his instructions to you, Ventura. Turn to Christ. Believe on him. Trust that he was the son of God who came to die in your place. That is the instructions for you. Have faith that he took your punishment for sin and gives you eternal life above the waters. Now, don't fear the waters. Though they prevail over earth, trust in the God of the waters who is able to save you. Jesus is the ark you must enter into to escape judgment. Will you trust him and act on your faith? Or will you reject his word and drown in your rebellion? Let us go before the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness towards us that you would even give us this opportunity to turn to you, to long for you, to long for forgiveness, and, and that, Father, you would raise us up as children, sons and daughters of God. That you sent your Son into this world not to condemn the world, not to destroy the world, but you provided for us Christ, who is our ark, whom we need to escape from the judgment that comes. I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would believe you, that we would follow the instructions you have given to us and that we 
would rejoice in celebrating that one day you will make all things new. You will bring us safely to heaven's shores. And we will know you, and we will live with you, and we will rejoice with you and with one another for all eternity. And we can say with our hearts, even now, Father, that though the storms and the waters of tribulation are around us, we can say, we have Christ. It is well with my soul. Because God, you are the God of the waters. And if you are the God of the waters, you will hold me. And I will trust in you. Yes, it is well with my soul. And this is the ironic blessing. Um, the blessing that comes to the Levite priests that God had specifically told them, and you, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, listen to these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.